Good morning, everybody. And I want to say happy Mother's Day, and I hope that the mothers out there uh, feel loved and appreciated and cherished. And I know I want to say happy Mother's Day to my mom. She typically watches uh, one of these services. So, Mom, thank you for putting up with me for all those years. You're a special lady, and I love you. And I also want to um, reach out to those that are hurting today. For years and years, my wife and I struggled with infertility. And I know this can be a very hard day for many. And um, if you've lost a child or lost your mother or you're grieving the fact that you've not yet had the opportunity to be a mother, please know that we are grieving with you as well. And God sees you. So there was a, an, a journalist working for the New York Times by the name of Nicholas Kristof. And he had chosen two Cambodian prostitutes and was attempting to buy their freedom from the brothel owners. He selected young women who uh, were held there against their will. They were willing to share their story and actually wanted to leave prostitution. And the first one was, woman was named Sray Neff. And it was a simple transaction for $150. Uh, Nicholas went to the owner of that brothel, paid the fee, and was able to purchase uh, her freedom. But the next woman was not that easy. Um, he went through a grumpy negotiation, he said, and the owner accepted $203 as the price for a stray mom for her freedom. But then, to his shock, the woman told him that she had pawned her cell phone and needed $55 to get it back. He said, forget about your cell phone. He said, we've got to get out of here. But then she started crying. He told her that she had to choose between her cell phone and freedom. She ran back into her tiny room in that brothel, and she locked herself in. Then with her sobbing in that room, refusing to be free without her cell phone, the other prostitutes all surrounded her and said, What are you thinking? This man has come to, to free you, and you're going to lose out on that chance. The owner even came to her and begged, grab this chance while you can. But she became hysterical, and she refused to leave. The only way she would leave was when Christophe finally agreed to purchase that cell phone. And then she asked for her pawn jewelry to be part of the deal. And he talked about those complex emotions and making that decision to leave the brothel, what made it so difficult. He said, I have... Purchase the freedom of two human beings so I can return them to their villages, but will emancipation really help them? Will their families and villages accept them, or were they like some other girls, rescued from this kind of sexual servitude, find freedom so unsettling that they'll slink right back into the, sl the slavery and the brothels? He said, we'll see. And there are times when you and I can resemble this woman who is refusing to leave this slavery. Now, some will reject Christ flat out. And perhaps they see it, accepting Christ means giving up something that they perceive as their freedom. It could be their sex life. It could be their friends. It could be whatever kind of identity or lifestyle God said cannot be part of my kingdom. And many people would choose that, even though Christ has set them free 
for many of us, even though we've been set free from sin and death, will still you choose to live a life of slavery. Choosing to believe what the world says about us. If we don't look like this, if we don't own this, if we don't have the right people paying us compliments, if we don't have these followers on social media, these grades, this job, this money, then we should be afraid and anxious that we're going to be rejected or that we've failed or that life is just hopeless. What I want to talk about this morning is, well, how can I be free? How can I be free from the enslavement of this world? How can I be free from the worry and anxiety that God has, on the one hand, commanded me not to have, but on the other hand, just seems all too easy to fall into? The passage we're going to look at from this morning comes from John chapter 8. We'll start at verse 31. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. And just as a reminder, the reason we stand for the reading of God's Word is to show honor and authority of God's Word. My message is as authoritative as it is dependent on God's Word. So we stand to show honor uh, to the Word of God. We'll start at verse 31 of chapter 8 and read through verse 47. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed Him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did, but now you seek to kill me a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you're not of God. You may be seated. So we're continuing this morning through the book of John. We're talking about Christ as a living hope. A living hope they needed then, a living hope that we need today. As a matter of fact, I can offer no one here any hope outside of the person of Jesus Christ. And John wrote these things so that we would believe. And now he's addressing this crowd of so-called believing Jews. 
and freedom is truly being offered. And how I'd like to approach this subject is like this. First of all, you'll see the offer of freedom, but then you'll see that slavery has been made attractive. This is one of Satan's tricks, and Christ is calling them out on this. And then finally, we'll ask that question, well, how do I live free? And I'll suggest two ways, a positive and a negative. You've got to be able to find Satan's lies and then counter it with the truth of God. So let's start then with this freedom that has been offered. So Jesus is still addressing a community of Jews. He's been talking to them through a feast. It's called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast um, of Sukkoth. And it is in this feast that they are celebrating God's faithfulness. He's already said that he is the one that can quench their thirst. He just got done telling them that I am the light of the world. He stood there in the temple courtyard with the blazing uh, torch that lit up all Jerusalem saying, I am the light of the world. I'm the one who can guide you out of darkness. And then he continues now. And he tells us that he is addressing, the scriptures tell us, he's addressing Jews in the audience who believed in him. Just previously in verse 30, it says, while he was saying these things, many people believed in him. Well, then again in verse 31, he says, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him. Now, this is a little confusing because as you go down through this passage, They've got a lot of nasty things to say about Jesus, and then guess what? Jesus has got some really strong words to say to them. If you go down through these verses, at verse uh, 34, uh, he's, they're slaves to sin. They're indifferent to Jesus' words. They're children of the devil, liars, and they're guilty of mob tactics, including uh, attempted murder of the one in whom they had professed to believe. So what's going on here? And and how do I harmonize what's happening? And as you can imagine, a lot of scholars have weighed in on this. I read several commentaries just to make sure I was getting my head around this. And I think that one guy really nailed it, a guy by the name of D.A. Carson. He said, all you have to do is read through the book of John, and you'll understand what it is Christ is saying here. It seems that these believing Jews are people of a very fickle faith. They are unpredictable. They go this way and that. Back and forth. James may call this the double-minded man. And we see in the book of John um, that there were people that believed in his name when they saw signs. And we see this back in uh, chapter 2, verse 23. It says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. And then right after that, in verses 24 and uh, 25, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in a man. In other words, you can't fool Jesus. He knows. He knows where on the spectrum of belief everybody is. And he knows the hearts of people. He knows exactly where they are, how much they believe in him, and how much they've trusted themselves to him, and then hence how much he will entrust himself to them. And Jesus is uh, also going to say that the signs that he performs may produce an acceptable faith. We see that 
later on in chapter 10, it can produce an acceptable faith. But as for this group, they needed to hear what Jesus says there in these first verses of this section, verses 31 and 32. Then Jesus said to those Judeans who had believed him, if you continue to follow my teaching, you are really my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. This is what separates the people of the fickle faith, the feel-good faith, the fair day faith from the people who are truly the disciples of Christ that are going to follow him and follow hard after him and seek him no matter what. And that verb hold uh, is this Greek word meno. It means to abide in, to remain in. Um, it's, it's as though you're hanging on to something with a death grip, this teaching of Christ. This is the mark of the true faith. A real disciple is the one who perseveres. Something else this commentator said about the real disciple. Uh, D.A. Carson, in regard to Christ's teaching, such a person obeys it, seeks to understand it better, and finds it more precious, more controlling, precisely when other forces flatly oppose it. It is the one who continues in the teaching who has both the Father and the Son. This is the sign of the disciple of Jesus Christ. Then what's the result? That you will be free. Clearly, Jesus is not interested in just multiplying disciples. He's testing them. He said, you have to hold tightly to what I teach. Abide in the Word of God. And this will bring you such life that anything that could have been remotely considered life before that can only be categorized as sinful slavery. Think about that. When you see the world, when you see how the world does things, it is a sinful slavery compared to the life that Christ is offering, a life of freedom. The truth will set you free. Now, at first, the truth is not always pleasant. It diagnoses the sickness, and it calls out the flaws. That was the light that Jesus was bringing in. And notice it doesn't say that tolerance will set you free. Something that Josh McDowell said about that. He said, tolerance says, you must agree with me. Love responds, I must do something harder. I will tell you the truth because I am convinced the truth will set you free. The truth is not easy. In our culture. As a matter of fact, many people would even, not even acknowledge it exists. And yet it is the, the very ingredient that sets us free. God is 100% intolerant of sin. If he were 1% tolerant of sin, why would he ever have sent his own son to be tortured to death for you and I? There's a book uh, by a man named, uh, a Christian apologist named Gregor Kukul. And he, uh, it's called The Story of Reality. He says it's different from many people. I think I just, I'm good. Okay. Um, you know, these things run on batteries, you know, and they get, they get a little persnickety sometimes. I think I'm okay. Uh, he said it's difficult for many people to accept that there can be only one way to rescue us from sin and judgment. 
But listen to these analogies that he uses. He says, most ailments need particular antidotes. Increasing air pressure in your tires will not fix a troubled carburetor. Aspirin won't dissolve a tumor. Cutting up credit cards won't wipe out debt that's owed. If your water pipes are leaking, you call a plumber, not an oncologist, because a plumber can't cure cancer. Any adequate solution must solve the problem that needs to be solved, and singular problems need singular solutions. Some antidotes are one-of-a-kind cures for a -a one-of-a-kind ailment. Sometimes only one medicine will do the job, as much as we may like it to be otherwise. He said mankind faces a singular problem. People are broken, and the world is broken because our friendship with God has been broken, ruined by human rebellion. Humans, you and I, are guilty, enslaved, lost, and dead, all of us, everyone, everywhere. The guilt must be punished. The debt must be paid. The slave must be purchased. Promising better conduct in the future will not mend the crimes of the past. The rescuer must ransom the slaves. A kindred brother must pay the family debt. A substitute must shoulder the guilt. There's no other way of escape. Only through Christ can we have freedom from sin. But see, there's a problem with that. There's a problem with that because there's someone, there's a a person who desperately wants to make slavery as attractive as he possibly can. And he's very good at it. He's been doing it for millennia. And Satan wants you to be completely enslaved to a world and its systems all the time. Look at what happens next. We see these so-called believers start to challenge Jesus. He's told them he would set them free. They've got a problem with that. As the offspring of Abraham, they're claiming they've never considered themselves slaves. Now, obviously, they can't be talking about political slaves because at one time or another, Israel was enslaved to just about every kingdom that came along. And even now, they're in service to Rome. They're referring to a spiritual freedom. They're saying, look, Jesus, you don't get it. We have been free all of our existence to worship Whomever it was, we wanted to worship. We're the offspring of Abraham. How could you say then that we'll be set free? And it's got a little bit of a nasty tone to it when they say this. By saying Abraham is our father, they mean they count their inherited privilege as more important than the freedom that Christ has offered them. They're saying that you really don't get who we are. And they've revealed their false identity. Jesus proceeds, he explains them, you don't understand the nature of your enslavement. You don't get it. He said, it's not a country that you're enslaved to. You're enslaved to sin. He tells them that practicing sin enslaves them to sin. He said, it's not a tyrant like Caesar that you're enslaved to. Because Caesar himself is enslaved to sin. Everybody's enslaved to sin. He's impressing on them, we don't need to overthrow Rome, we need to overthrow sin. He explains them in verse 35 and 36, slaves don't get to stay with their families. And if we look back in the Old Testament, Genesis 21, remember this story about Abraham. Because Abraham gave birth, he had two sons initially, one by the wife that God had given him, and then one by a slave girl named Hagar. By Hagar, he had a son named Ishmael. By Sarah, he had a son named Isaac. 
Ishmael was the slave's son, and he was cast out of the house. Isaac was the true son, and he got to stay. The question is coming to them, do you want to be like Isaac, or do you want to be like Ishmael? Do you want to be the true son that stays in the house, or do you want to be the one that's cast away? The issue was not a physical genealogy. The issue was a spiritual family that they were not a part of. No Jew or no human being for any man, for, for, in any case is going to make it to heaven without the blood of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter your genealogy. It doesn't matter who you are. Jesus speaks the truth. And they want to kill him for it. Then look at what he says in verse 38. He says, I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Now he's gone to what we'd say back in West Virginia. He's gone to Medlin, and he's starting to get to the heart of the problem. They have a different father altogether. This is the, the wind-up for what he's going to say a few verses down. The people say Abraham's their spiritual father. But Jesus explains to them that Abraham is the father of those who have faith, not simply those who keep Jewish traditions and possess his blood, bloodline and, and ancestry and tradition, offer false promises to those who think that God is found in them alone. Words, please hear me, that nobody gets to inherit their faith from their parents in the sense that your parents' faith will not save you. You have to believe yourself. You have to come to that moment of faith. All parents should bring their kids to church. But the children have to hear the gospel and respond to it for themselves. Jesus is saying, if you were so-called children of Abraham, you'd be a person of faith like Abraham. Then look at verse 41. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we, there's a sarcastic tone in this, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one Father, even God. They were perhaps insinuating, Jesus, we know where you came from. You don't even necessarily know who your dad is. We've heard these crazy stories you've told that the Father in heaven is your dad. But, yeah, we know how women get pregnant. There's been stories circulating about you. Jesus goes on to explain he came from God himself but you have an inability to accept my word, the truth. So look at verse 44. You are, this is the mic drop moment. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. The devil is the enemy of life and truth. In Genesis 3, that we see him use lies to uh, bring spiritual and physical death to mankind. He distorts the truth. He's, there's no truth in him. And he seeks to lead people away from God. And since these Jews wanted Jesus' death, and since they rejected the truth and embraced the lie, their family solidarity with Satan and his desires was certain. They want what Satan wants. How different from having Abraham as your father. And Satan's fatherhood is one of lies and deceit. See, he wants to make the world look as, tra as attractive as, as possible. He wants people to turn their gaze 
to the world, away from God, away from truth. He wants to convince people there is no world beyond this one. This is it. So you got you to eat and drink and, and be merry right now. Buy all you can. Serve yourself. Or be anxious and fearful all the time. Be afraid all the time. Worry about anything that crosses your mind. Don't take risks for Christ. You may fail and look ridiculous. Work really, really hard to get the approval of everybody you can so they won't criticize you and you'll feel good about yourself. And they won't reject you. You know you deserve to be punished and ashamed. You know that you should be hopeless and that you should be in despair. All lies from Satan. Meant to enslave you, meant to enslave me, and has enslaved me more times than I even want to admit. How do we find freedom then? Satan's working hard to keep you enslaved, worried uh, about the future because God can't really control that, and bitter about the past because God must have made a mistake back there. Here's where we can get some help, I think, from a Scottish theologian by the name of Sinclair Ferguson. He wrote a book called By Grace Alone. And he, I think, correctly identified four of the major fiery darts that Satan is going to hurl at you and I as often as he possibly can. He wants to rob us of our assurance and, and peace in the gospel. So listen to these four fiery darts. I can identify with just about all of them at some time. First of all, that God is against you, Satan says. He's not really for you. How can you believe he is for you when you see the things that are happening in your life? Satan will say, no, look at the world. Look at Ukraine. Look at this mess. Are you going to say that God is in any part of that or in you? Why would he allow this to happen? There's fiery dart number one. Number two, I have accusations I will bring against you because of your sin, Satan argues. What can you say in your defense? Nothing. I know it all. I know what you've done. I know what, what you think you're hiding. God knows what you've done. And you can say nothing in your defense. Number three, you can say you are forgiven, but there is a payback day coming. A condemnation day, Satan insinuates. And how will you defend yourself then? It's all going to come out. You wait. And then number four, given your track record, what hope is there that you will persevere to the end? Be afraid. Be very, very scared because you know you're going to mess up. You know you're going to turn your back. At the first available off-ramp on this interstate of Christianity, you're out of here and you know it. Wait till persecution comes. Wait till those protesters come to your front door and you will run. Those are the lies. And you've got to find the lies. But don't stick with the lies because you have to trust God's truth because Christ counters these things, these fiery darts. So Satan will say God is against you, but then look at what Jesus said about the circumstances of the world in your life. He said, he told his disciples this in the upper room, I have said these things to you in John 16, that in me you may have peace in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. He's saying, look, yeah, it's going to be tough. You know what? You're going to suffer. 
But guess what? It's normal. It's normal. This world is as close to hell as the Christian is going to get. It's as close to heaven as the non-Christian is going to get. He said, I've overcome the world. Those apostles, those people who were very close to me and followed me, guess what? They all died very young. And the one who did continue to live on, the apostle John, tradition said he actually survived being boiled in oil before he was exiled to, um, to the island, to Patmos, where he wrote the book of Revelation. Think about Job, the righteous, most righteous man in all the world. And he suffered. You will suffer. I'm sorry. We, we all will. That should be normative to the Christian experience. It does not mean that God is not for you. He's absolutely for you. And Jesus suffered himself to show us how to do it. And then secondly, I have accusations I'm going to bring against you because of your sins. Someday when Jesus comes back, we're all going to be lined up and your life is going to be put up on the screen. And we're all going to see it. All that I don't know where in the world we got the idea that that's going to happen. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that all that stuff is going to be brought out in front of everybody. You're going to be rewarded for the good things you did. There'll be a test by fire, but it's not like all your junk is going to be brought out of the closet. As a matter of fact, look at what the Scriptures say. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. Micah 7, 19, He will cast all our sins into the bottom of the sea. Does it sound like... There's a condemnation or, or this accusation thing is coming. Number three, well, you can say you're forgiven. There's payback coming. You're going to get punished, really punished. But look at Isaiah 53, 5. He was pierced for our transgression. Speaking of Christ, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. He took all that punishment. He took all that pain. So you and I won't have to. He took it for everybody, anybody willing to put their faith in him. He took the sins on himself. So you won't be punished for it. And then finally, number four, given your track record, what hope is there that you will persevere to the end? This is one of Satan's craftiest tricks. He wants to keep you all spun up and unsettled about whether or not you're really a Christian. The problem is when you do that, you're turning inward, 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 when you need to be turning outward, outward, outward. You'd be looking at the Savior, trusting what He did. He's the one who does the saving. Look at these assurances. John 3, 36. Everyone who believes on Him will not perish but have eternal life. John 5, 24. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life. And then I assure you, anyone who believes has eternal life. John 6, 47. The best evidence you have of your salvation is just asking yourself a simple question. Do I believe it or not? Do you believe it? You're saved. And you've got every assurance that you're saved. And that you will be saved. And that you are saved. So summing it up, be set free from Satan's lives by the truth of Jesus Christ. Be set free from the worry and the anxiety and the freedom to love anything more than Jesus. I want to just close from a brief story. I think most of us probably had an experience. I know walking home from school, there was this dog we always had to walk by. His name was Trampus, chained to a dirty old doghouse. 
Another pastor, he, Pastor Poe, wrote a similar story. He said the uh, kids in his neighborhood were terrified of a large boxer they had to walk by. Barked real loud. It was at the end of a chain, but they were always afraid it would bust the chain and it would come after him. Of course, the chain would stop him, but it, he said he would start worrying about that dog blocks before he ever reached the house. And one day, the owner of the dog was in the yard. He saw the whole scene unfold. And the next day, as he walked by the house, the man was again outside, but, but he had the dog on a leash. And when he saw us, he said, come here, I, I want to show you something. He said, we didn't know if we were in trouble or if he was going to let the dog bite us. Either way, we were not going to walk over to him. But then he started walking to us. And the whole time, he said, the man kept saying, you don't need to be afraid of my dog. Then he knelt down and pulled the dog's upper lip and revealed the dog had no teeth. He said, even if this dog were to get loose and try to bite you, he said it wouldn't hurt. He said they all started to laugh. He said, we were never afraid of that dog again. When the man told us the truth, all the fears and worries we had about the dog were instantly gone. The most common tool in Satan's toolbox is to lie to us. And Satan wants to bring worry and fear on you by whispering into your ear a whole lot of what-ifs about things that may not even be true. But what you will find is like that dog, the devil has no teeth, and his bark is worse than his bite. Please pray with me. God, we thank you that we can have a relationship with you. Father, because of the work of the Son, Lord, that we can be set free. That to, to the degree, Lord, to which we can believe your truth, we can be free of worry and fear and anxiety. And we thank you that in your grace you forgive us our sins. And Lord, I pray that we would not leave here today without a firm belief that we have been set free and freedom is available. Lord, I pray for those who have not yet put their faith in you who are here this morning, that they wouldn't let this chance pass them by, that they would meet me at the front, that we would pray together, that they might pray to you for the first time today as one trusting in what you've done for us. Only you can save us. We thank you for that truth. And I pray we would live with it every day and meditate on it every day. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.